from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. This week, the search for the perfect interview. Public radio host Barbara Bogay will join us to talk about her experience growing up in Philadelphia, listening to Fresh Air with Terry Gross, to eventually guest hosting the show. Bogave also hosted the radio documentary series Soundprint and Weekend America. She has also guest-hosted Marketplace Weekend and programs at KCRW in Santa Monica. Today, we'll talk about the night in which she may or may not have been drinking and landed a job in radio, her thoughts on what makes radio good, and how she became a suspected terrorist and inadvertently helped to burn down a sheep herder's hut in Morocco in an unseasonably strong blizzard. It's Wednesday, May 10th, and this is News Nerds. Longtime public radio host Barbara Bogave is joining us now. She was a co-host of Weekend America from 2004 to 2006, hosted the radio documentary series Soundprint, and was a guest host on WHYY's Fresh Air with Terry Gross and Marketplace Weekend. She's currently a podcast host and guest hosts for NPR member station KCRW in Santa Monica. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Ezra. So NPR and I guess PBS were kind of made in conjunction with each other in the 1970s. You know, before that, there wasn't really anything like those two uh, organizations. But I'm curious, like when you were a kid, what did you listen to? Uh, or what was what were you what was your education outside of school? Uh, well, <laughs> I'll answer what I listened to first, because it's funny. Uh, Fresh Air started sometime while I was in high school and I am from Philadelphia and I listened to Terry Gross, who was on locally in the afternoon for something like I think three, possibly four hours in the afternoon. I mean, just the whole afternoon was Terry Gross. And I remember listening to her and thinking, wow, what a great job. Did you grow up in Philadelphia? Oh, yeah. And and what was your what was your childhood like? I mean, I haven't really heard any interviews with you. I always like to start, you know, I think origin stories tell a lot about, you know, how a person uh, grew up, but also who they became. Oh, I love that. Um, growing up, I, well, my brothers and sisters were all a lot older than I was. Uh, they're 10 years older, nine years older and four years older. And so my house was full of all of their books from school. And I just kind of grew up pretty fast reading books, probably too early and reading a lot because they all went off to college or or boarding school and kind of left me alone at home. Um, and my parents were older. Everybody thought my parents were my grandparents. So, so, so I did spend a lot of time kicking around a suburban neighborhood in outside of Philadelphia and reading books and being a really diehard uh, tomboy. It's an old-fashioned word, but that's what I was. And then eventually um, you went to Yale for college. You studied comparative literature? Oh yeah, no, that's what I studied. I guess what is that and how how did you decide to do that? (laughs) Well, like I said, I read 
just all the time. And I had a teacher in high school, actually middle school, who was kind of um, really encouraged me to become a writer and had written to writers, uh, encouraging them to write to me about what it was like to be a writer. And somewhere in there, I thought, okay, I'm just going to study literature. And uh, this was in the 1980s when there was this trend in academia called deconstructionism. And it's a pretty maligned um, way to look at literature now, but it was the hot thing then. And so that's what I studied. And and they were mostly comparative literature people. And I, I speak German and I'd studied German. So German and English and Spanish were my languages. So that's how I ended up studying comparative literature. And, and uh, it doesn't really lead you to any profession. <laughs> it's like it also got me very far off of academia. I was there was no way I was going to become yeah. an academic after living through that. It's one of those degrees where you pay a lot of money, but you don't really get a very large return in the long term. Well, deconstructionism, the, the the literary theory is all about how it's impossible to communicate through words, through okay. language. So it's a real head trip. It's it's a it's a lot of philosophy and it's a lot of history and a lot of um um very, very oblique writing. It kind of destroys you as a writer. I had to kind of relearn how to write and communicate with people or even believe I could communicate with people. So it's ironic I ended up in radio. Well, what's happening to you in between your time in college and then after college and then when you eventually um, joined NPR? Oh, it's a winding tale, Ezra. Let's see. The first job I had out of college, I was working for a lawyer who'd made a lot of money representing people who had asbestos um, poisoning. He wanted to invest a million dollars in a movie. And he hired me to find him a movie to produce. And I convinced him that I would find him a, I should find him a movie in Germany. So I ended up in Germany, where I wanted to be anyway, looking for a movie. And I found him a great script and a great filmmaker. And um, that movie actually became eventually not produced by him, but by other people, uh, became one of the first crossover films uh, from the German um, to make it big here in America. It's called Baghdad Cafe. But anyway, that lawyer realized, oh no, if I give away my money, I won't, I just won't be very important anymore. I think his money was the only thing that made him feel good about himself. So he backed out of paying for this movie. And so I I came back to America and I and I started working in television and film, actually, living in New York. And I ended up working on the first primetime television series to tape in in New York called The Equalizer. And I was working on documentaries there. And I was working in uh, very early um, on in Nickelodeon, the, the children's television company. I, I worked for Nickelodeon. And somewhere along there, I got really disenchanted with television. And I tried to work for PBS in, in Channel 13. And they offered me a unpaid internship position with an up-and-coming documentary maker who they thought was going to really be hot stuff. And I turned that down because I couldn't afford to live in New York without getting paid. Uh, 
And guess who that documentary maker turned out to be? Was it Ken Burns? Yes. Yes. It was Ken Burns. Wow. (laughs) And then the night, the day I turned it down, uh, I had a friend call me from college and she, uh, she'd grown up in New York. So she was living with her parents looking for work. And she said, do you know of anything? And I said, well, there's this unpaid internship you might be interested (laughs) in. And she got it. And she is, has worked with him all along. She is his producer today, his co-producer. Anyway, not that I would have ended up. She's she's a very smart person. Yeah, like I said, uh, one night I got really discouraged about all of this. And um, this is so long ago that the I, I thought, okay, I, I want to work in public TV. I have to look for a real job that pays money in public television. And this is so long ago that at the time, the way you got a job in public broadcasting was you called an, a 1-800 number. And every week, somebody listed all of the jobs in, in public television and public radio by state <laughs> and made a tape. And you just listen and go in alphabetical order, state through state. So I called looking for a job in public TV, but I landed in the middle of the alphabet, I think in the O's at Oregon in public radio. And so it was like two o'clock in the morning and uh, I don't endorse drinking Ezra, but I was drinking (laughs) and I'm just hanging on this line, listening to this, you know, job state by state in Oregon. And then city by city and station by station. And then we got to Pennsylvania and WHYY came up and they said that fresh air was going national and they were looking for staff and producers and there were jobs there. So that is how I ended up at WHYY. Do you think that your background appealed to the people at at fresh air and WHYY? Um, I I guess to me that kind of blends into what to other stories that I've heard. You mean how eclectic it was? Right. I mean, Terry Gross yeah. is an interesting person. And I guess all of those people are. Um, yeah. Well, uh, let's see. First, I, I didn't, just to be clear, I didn't get the job at, at, okay. at Fresh Air uh, because I didn't have any experience in radio. But I did. I did get the job as the producer of the local show that was going to take the place of fresh air since it was going national at WHYY. And I think you're right though. I think that they did like that. I'd done all these other things. It's rare to go from television to radio. I got to say most people leave radio looking to make more money and go to, <laughs> go to television and film. I don't know what's wrong with me that I, I was downwardly mobile, but I think you're right. And, and I had a kind of, hilarious experience when I went to be interviewed by the people at WHYY. It was Bill Seemering, who yeah. is just a legendary guy. And you know him in public radio. He started All Things Considered. He's from Philadelphia, and he was our station manager at the time. And I walked in for the interview, and Bill Seemering said, I'm Bill Seemering. Nice to meet you. What is the meaning of art in society. That was his opener (laughs) to a job interview. (laughs) And what did you say? 
you know, I don't remember, but I, I kind of stumbled around and, and, uh, you know, I hope, I, I hope I said some version of, you know, art is there for the things that, that you can't say, you can't say, you can't speak directly. Um, it speaks for us in other ways, but I don't know what I said, but like 20 or 25 years later, I ran into Bill at a public radio conference and, I sat down with him and said, Bill, do you remember what you asked me? You asked me what what's the meaning of art and society is my first question in the job interview. And he burst out laughing and he said, ah, I was probably writing a grant to get money for the station that day. And I asked every single person who walked into my office that question. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. <laughs> He's a wonderful guy. And then he, so he ended up working with you at Soundprint, didn't he? Well, no, he had started Soundprint. Um, this was after okay. Soundprint. You know, you know the thing, the amazing thing about Bill that a lot of people, I mean, some people don't know, is that he he hit really hard times after he was at a station manager at WHYY. He couldn't get another job, and he actually, you know, he was a little he's probably a little older than I am now, but I mean, he wasn't retirement age and he certainly wasn't old. And he, uh, he got so despondent. He, he applied for a medallion to, to drive a taxi. Oh, wow. To support himself and his family. I know. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Um, Well, and then he got a MacArthur and that saved him. I guess NPR isn't really known for money. (laughs) That's an understatement. You know, just for background, Bill Seamarine is kind of considered uh, one of the founders of NPR, um, along with the founding mothers, three that are alive today, Nina Totenberg, Susan Stamberg, and Linda Wertheimer. So yes, he was a, a pioneer in, in public media. Um, how did you first meet Terry Gross or Danny Miller or you know any of the people that, that worked with Fresh Air? I was producing this local show called Radio Times at WHRY, and Fresh Air is... Uh, produced in Philadelphia at WHYY. So we're all, we were all colleagues there. I was producing this local show and also I would fill in for the host when she couldn't do it. So at some point, Fresh Air asked me if I wanted to, to fill in on, on their show as well. I guess they listened to me on Radio Times. It's not a great story. I try. I, I. I mean, I've ended up marrying the director of Fresh Air. So from the start, we were all friends, and we're lifelong friends. A lot of us now. It's a pretty small group of people who work for WHYY. In your opinion, what makes a good interview or radio story? That's a great question. You know, my favorite thing on the radio is that beat of silence or a couple of beats where you hear the person thinking or maybe yeah, when they that. slow down and they're, yeah, right. You just hear them, the sound of someone thinking and reflecting and digging for something. And that's really hard to 
achieve with a lot of people who are either really versed in being interviewed, they, you know, famous people, they, they've just heard it all before, or they're not in the mindset to, to think, um, uh, they come reluctant to an interview or, you know, they outright don't like the press or trust them. And it's hard with a lot of people. It's hard with people who aren't, uh, used to being on the radio because they're nervous. So there's that too. That is my quest to get people really thinking. And I guess that it's also, it's the other side of the coin of, of a true human connection that you make with someone when you're talking to them on the radio, rather than just the, what'd you do? What'd you do then? What happened? You know, to really feel like these two people are connecting in a meaningful way is something I always go for. And, and it sounds kind of trite when I say it, but but it's not something you hear all the time on the radio. So here's kind of a hypothetical situation. Um, you know, I, th I think this will be interesting for people that listen to this interview, but I really like to know um, the answer to this question too. When you were preparing for interviews, let's just say that somebody has written a new book, you, you get it before the interview. How do you prepare for, for that interview? You know, I'm really curious how you prepared for this one. <laughs> do you want do you want me to go first and then you can tell me? Yeah. So a new book. What I do first always is I read the book. I always read the dedication. Because there, there's often things in the dedication that you'd never guess at. It's when people get their most personal in many books. So, you know, so I start there. I read the book. I read every scrap of information I can get about that person on in the media or hear about, hear them in an interview. I certainly look for interviews, but often with a, a new, say a new author, you're not going to get that. In fact, on Fresh Air, it's rare. It was hard to to book a new a first time author or it was hard for first time authors to book with us because there was this feeling that there isn't a real body of work to talk to them about for a whole um we talked to people for close to an hour usually to cut it down and we talk in chapters and with the first book you, there's just not enough information to go on you know so i i dig up every scrap of research uh, or someone has done that for me. And and I usually have a pre-interview, a producer who's pre-interviewed the guest and asked them all the questions, you know, filled in all the blanks from the research so that I don't have to go digging. And certainly I don't have to ask yes or no questions. I've already digested a lot. And I can I can ask the question that isn't the obvious question, which is what you're always going for and which is why say on a program like Fresh Air, Terry Gross is so brilliant at kind of setting up a whole question so that the guest answers at exactly the moment in the story that's most interesting and most pertains to the exact angle 
that she's going for in her question. She doesn't start at the beginning. That's why her questions are often so long. I have all my ducks in a row. I have all my research and my pre-interview and all, you know, I've written all these notes, usually in the actual book. If I have a hard copy of a book, I'll write them all. I'll write the questions in the, in the margins of the book and underline stuff. And then I go in and I write everything down and move all the questions around and also write in notes so that I have kind of a question and answer. And I, by the end, I have a whole script and I might not follow that script, but I have the whole conversation. I've kind of rehearsed it in my head before it happens. That's interesting. Um, I guess I have a similar approach to doing interviews. I just wrote an article about this for the for the website about I'm doing a series about how I do uh, interviews. So when I get a new book, I always like to get the paper back or the hardcover, you know, just a physical copy of the book, because I think it's just much easier to to uh, write notes. I have like this weird thing where I'd hate to write directly in a book, but I take a bunch of sticky notes and I write questions as they come to me. I also kind of mark up maybe key moments in the book because what I do after that is when I have read the whole book or read as much as I possibly can, I make a skeleton and kind of go off of that skeleton. So there might be like five key points in this book that I really want to hit. Um, and they're usually stages in somebody's life or stages in a particular event. So there's usually a chronological skeleton that I go off of. I look at all my sticky notes. I enter all of the questions that I thought of just during the reading of the book. And that usually comes out to like around 15 for a good size book. And I narrow, I have to narrow it down to 10, eight, or I guess eight to 12. So yeah, a lot of it is just reordering things to make it look chronological or maybe not chronological, but catch somebody off guard or spark something new about something that we just talked about. So basically have it in a way that makes sense to me. Well, for this interview, um, there's this great tool called the Fresh Air Archive that the people at WHYY created. So I had to kind of dig around, but I found, I think probably uh, 40 interviews that you did with Fresh Air. And so I listened to a few of them. I, I listened to the to the Fred Rogers interview that you did. I listened to the James McBride interview with that you did. Um, James McBride is a novelist and you talked to him about, I think a memoir that he did about how he grew up in a, a family with, with many siblings. His mom was white and his dad was African-American. His mom couldn't really accept her own race. So that's mm -hmm. one I picked to listen to. And then I also listened to um, the, an interview that you recorded with, with, I think the director or producer of the Hobbit movies when they were first coming out. And so oh, yeah, I, I remember that I listened to some of basically all I could from what you had made with Soundprint or weekend America. I looked in the APM archives. So that's kind of the really boring nuts and bolts of how I, I do interviews, but it really, if you don't have good questions and if you don't have them laid out, well, you're not going to get anything out of somebody. Well, I love what you, I love your process. I think that's really cool. And what you were saying about uh, winnowing it down and putting it in an order that makes sense. That's really key because you, a good interview has a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. And then there are chapters kind of in between. And that's how I think of it too. I think you're exactly right. You're basically making a sophisticated summary of something. 
you know, it's kind of like a book report, but maybe more, more nuanced. If it's a book, yeah, it kind of is. You're right. But then you always want to go beyond that. And right. I think early, early on, especially filling in for Terry, it was kind of big shoes to fill. And there were a lot of people breathing down my neck. And, and there was this feeling like, you know, you can't blow it. You only have your hour of studio time. And you have these very, as you know, Ezra, you, you talk to famous people, much more famous than me. You know, you have busy people. You don't want to waste their time. It all has to work out. And I, I remember some interviews where I just couldn't get beyond what I already knew. And that's unsatisfying. It's unsatisfying yeah. for the listener and unsatisfying for us, right? For you. Right. you have you had that experience where oh, you, yeah, you kind definitely. of like, yeah. So, so bad. I know, right? Yeah. You want to be surprised and you want to surprise yourself. And, and I think also like beginnings of interviews are so interesting because if you have someone who's come in and they, they usually, if they have any experience with the press at all, they have kind of an idea in their head, even if they don't know it, of what they're going to say, no matter what yeah. you ask them, they're going to spout, they're going to come out with, with what they prepared. And usually it's, you know, to sell their product, their book or their movie or their film as, as it should be. Um, they have every right to do that. Of course, that's often why we're doing this, but that's so frustrating, right? So I always try with the first question to get them a little bit off, off their, uh, off base. Do you have a go-to to question them a little that bit does off. that? No, no, it's always different. And sometimes it backfires on you. The go-to part of it would be something personal, something personal and something very present. You know, like if I know something just happened, I'll ask a question that jumps off of that. If they just had some kind of interview where something happened or they just had a, a media appearance or they, they, they just had a statement, they just said something about, even if it has nothing to do with the book at hand or the movie or the TV show, something, some part of their life that they're just not expecting me to dig into. I'll ask that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to play a clip if that's all right with you. And this is from an interview that you did in the early 2000s with Fred Rogers, the, the host and creator of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. Um, and you did oh, this. Oh, wow. I haven't heard that since then. This will be well, interesting. Here, you, here we go. This is this is a clip of the interview, and this is only months before he died, and I think that was in 2003. Um, but here's a clip, and this is where he goes in character as some of the puppets that he voiced and played on the show, and he was directly talking to you, and then I'm going to just ask um, what you thought while this was happening. Friday the 13th is a fine day, and may you not say otherwise. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's taking me back. <laughs> no, well, this is Lady Elaine Toots. You ask about me, and I'm mighty glad you did. <laughs> Have you ever been to my museum go-round? Well, you'll find everything that you could ever want in any one of those rooms. Oh, this is X the Owl. Uh, uh, you seem to be speechless, Barbara. 
<laughs> so true. I'm just flying around here <laughs> looking for you. <laughs> Uh, there's Daniel Tiger over at his clock. <laughs> Did you want to say hello to him? I mean, he's awful shy. So, well, I am shy, but I, but I would like to say that I'm glad you're having fresh air. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. So that wow, was a, I forgot. He did a whole medley. He, he did a whole medley, and that was the interview that uh, my guest Barbara Bo gave recorded with, with Fred Rogers. So you just said that it was the first time that you've heard that in at least a long time. Um, any first impressions? Wow, I, I'm so glad you picked that because uh, I did not have a lot of spirits watching Mr. Rogers. I didn't grow up with Mr. Rogers. My kids came a little too late for Mr. Rogers. They were more tele, uh, tubbies age. So. Well, what did you mean I when really, you said it's taking me back? Well, some part of me, I must have watched it because I definitely did have that ping of like, oh my gosh, this guy. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember when, when, we wanted to, uh, we were deciding if we were going to talk to him. I really wanted to know who this person was behind Mr. Rogers, because a lot of people either really love him or some find it a little off-putting, his persona. So I, I wanted to know if, if it was, a, if there was a persona, who he was. And the more I, I read about him, the more intrigued I got. And then, you know, Ezra, I've, I, people ask me well, who my favorite person is or a favorite interview was. And I usually say Fred Rogers, because he is so authentically that man that he is on mm -hmm. television. I mean, it's astonishing, actually, you know, it's rare that you're so surprised by the person you're talking to. And also, he is so authentically kind. I mean, he, you said it was a few months before he died. That's right. And he, I didn't know this at the time when we booked him. Um, I only found out later, but he had cancer. He was in a great deal of pain. They told me afterwards, um, he was in a great deal of pain that day that he talked to me. Just talking was painful, but I, I never knew it. I mean, he, he came on and while we were preparing to do the interview, he, you know, where you ask people to uh, give you permission to air this and kind of go through, uh, just the, the, the prep for, things before you start the interview. He asked me about my children and he just wouldn't stop talking. I mean, he kept asking me questions about my children and say, and about my life. And he was just so curious about me. And at the end, thanked me so much uh, for brightening up his day by this interview. I just, I, I mean, I kind, I kind of came out of that control room with tears in my eyes. Uh, this man was really, had really moved me. And I was so sad when he, when I found out later how sick he was. You you just brought back a lot of thoughts. Sorry about that. Oh, I, I'm glad to um, hear about that. I, I never had heard about that aspect of the interview. Fresh Air is still known for uh, maybe bringing a new perspective out to America. And I think it was especially so um, when it was 
when it was less national, I think Terry Gross had some guests that were talking about things like uh, gender affirming surgery or being gay or having AIDS, things like that, specifically about race, sexuality and, and gender that were very different from the mainstream media and how they were covering or not covering those subjects. Did you come out of your experience guest hosting Fresh Air with a different perspective about those topics? Oh, um, hmm. well, I, I, you're right about all that, but um, I was pretty much right there with them in in that moment. What I came out of Fresh Air with was an incredible education in, in how to do this job, how to talk to people and, and how to think about what makes for a good experience on the radio and listening to the radio um, and what makes for a balanced conversation. You know, early on, we didn't do that many, we didn't do much politics on the radio, which sounds weird. I, by that, I mean, we didn't interview politicians. We, of course, yeah. talked about things that were politically relevant, but we didn't talk to politicians. And that kind of changed after my time. But we certainly talked about uh, difficult conversations, and I learned how to handle a lot of topics with some nuance. I don't know. I still had a lot to learn. I mean, we all did. You know, we're all finding that out on NPR, certainly in the last few years, how to how to deal with in a in, with a polarized nation and and deal with these difficult subjects with fairness and representing as many sides as possible and not being binary. It's all still difficult, but definitely fresh air gave me great grounding in all that. Have you ever felt um, constrained by the limitations of hosting rather than reporting or having a program where you could have more freedom of exactly what you could do? Oh God. Yes. You're doing such a great job, Ezra. I'm so jealous of you. You're in there just doing, you get to say whatever you want to say, right? <laughs> right. It's pretty weird. Right. It's pretty weird, isn't it? No, I spent a whole a whole career at public in public radio. Well, first of all, not being able to swear as much as I do in real life. How do you feel about and that? About not swearing? Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> well, it's weird. I've been thinking about that. I... When people swear, which is very, very infrequently on on this sh on this show, I just bleep it out because it's fun to bleep it out. I always get such a kick out of doing that. Um, but now I'm like, well, it's just oh. a word. It's just a word. It's just a word, exactly. I mean, it's a word that can alienate some listeners, and so you, I guess, think about that and think about. I don't know who your listeners are, Ezra, but we certainly got a lot of mail and later email on. Uh, at fresh air about certain words and you can get fined. I think it was a quarter of a million dollars at some point. Mm, right. Uh, so, I mean, swearing, it's a very small thing. I just, I was almost being facetious with that, uh -huh, but, yeah. but I'm, I don't know. We've only talked for a little while, but uh, you can tell I'm, I'm maybe not as um, what's the right word. There's a certain sound that uh, I grew up with on public radio that is very measured and people really loved how measured the voices were, especially the women of public radio. Look, my voice is getting deeper as I'm Just doing it. Just an airy voice, isn't it? 
Right, right. The thing that they make fun of or yeah. made fun of on Saturday Night Live. Um, and I never had that voice. And it was a little bit of a, a struggle for me, actually. Um, I I think I'm I was always a little bit too earthy, uh, so to speak, for public radio. So it was a great relief when podcasting came along. Uh, I really, even though I, I host a podcast about Shakespeare, which is about as fusty as fusty and musty as you can get uh, in some ways uh, on, in podcasting, but, but it's a real relief to not have any kind of preconceived ideas about what you should sound like on the radio or, or to belong to an organization. You know, when you work for fresh air, you represent NPR and you, you have to abide by those laws and bylaws of NPR, which include never showing your personal, uh, your political affiliation, never marching in a, in a, in a protest. Um, and that can be very constricting. I'm going to read something that I found in your description from APM, which is American public media. They help to distribute public radio shows. And this is part of your bio um, from from their website. Okay. In addition to her proven skill at talking to newsmakers about the events of the day, Bogave has exchanged fashion tips with transvestite singer RuPaul and designer Isaac Mizrahi, taught listeners how to make fake blood with guidance from B-movie actor Bruce Campbell, and written collaborative <laughs> short fiction with callers on the air. She lost a mic while climbing the highest billboard in Philadelphia to interview sign painters. Stranded in a freak snowstorm at the pass of the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, Bogave and her distressed travelers ended up inadvertently setting fire to a sheep herder's hut. And then there's that police record in Germany, skinny dipping. Could you just maybe explain some of those stories? <laughs> well, that was a mouthful. Um, which one? You want to choose one? Uh, yeah, I'll choose one. What about the sh the sheep herders hut that you set on fire? Well, I did get stranded in a bus in Morocco at the top of the pass uh, of the Atlas Mountains. It was a freak blizzard in the summer, and the bus driver tried to, he got scared. He tried to turn the bus around, but the, it was on, you know, you're at the passive amount. You're on one side is just this sheer drop, sheer cliff. And he got stuck. He got scared and he stuck the bus. <laughs> he stopped the bus so that he was backing both ways, the whole, the whole road. And then he got out of the bus. Every time he made a move too, every time he was trying to turn, he, all of the elders would get off the bus and all the rest of us had to get off the bus and all the elders would have this major like confrontation, big argument fight about what to do. And then, and then they, they do it. And then it would repeat all over again. This is in the blizzard. We'd, and we're all wearing, I was wearing like shorts and sandals and we're standing out there in the blizzard. Finally, anyway, he blocked the pass and cars started backing up for miles on either side of the pass and we had to leave all our luggage on the bus and walk in our sandals and our shorts in the blizzard down to the closest town, which was this village where it was the middle of the night, too, by that time. And and no one would open their doors. We kept on knocking. And finally, this poor guy opened the door of his hut, his sheep hut, and let us in. 
and there was a fire, kind of a fire in the corner of this dwelling. I and my boyfriend were the only Westerners on the bus, and we were kind of pushed to the back of this group because everyone else got to be near the fire. And because I was at the back of of the the group, I could see that the the sheep herder was really upset because people wanted to light this this lantern he had. And he didn't want to use up his kerosene that was in this lantern. And so he he was he had unscrewed the top of this kerosene lantern. And he was looking in to try and see how much kerosene he had left. But he couldn't see because it was so dark. So he lit a match and held it to the opening of this kerosene lantern. And it just, it was like a flamethrower. It just, you know, ignited and it threw this flame up into the air and it lit the roof of his sheep hut, which was thatch on fire. And so we all had to go running back out into the blizzard. While we were standing in the blizzard, finally, the people, the rest of the people in the town woke up and came and to help put out the fire. And poor man was standing next to me and he was out of his, out of his mind. I mean, here he'd done this good deed and just set his house on fire. But, uh, but the, and the sheep were like jostling us and, and he's, he's moaning. And, and the guy next to him just said, look, you know, Allah be praised. Look at all the people who are coming to help, help you. Um, and then what about your, your police record? <laughs> Um, well, that's, that's, that's too long a story, but it it involved in a nutshell. Um, I actually, I got, I got mugged in Germany. I was in Germany during college and I had a job under the table. You know, I wasn't allowed to work, but I had this job at a, a thrift store kind of and one day the owner of the thrift store went to lunch and I was alone in the store and these two guys came in and they they said they wanted to see the boots in the back room that were for sale. And I was bending down looking to see what the price of a boot was. And, and one of them jumped on my back with a handkerchief soaked in ether and held it over my face, trying to knock me out like they do in the movies. They did not know what they didn't know was that I was a, on the judo team at college. And, and so when someone just jumps on your back, just your instinct is to throw them. So I threw this guy and I was standing right in front of a brick wall where these um, shelves were. So I threw him right into a brick wall and he just like landed on the ground, funk, dazed. But then the other guy came and all three of us were kind of started grappling around and I got mugged and they stole my passport. In the end, that was the only thing of worth in that store was my American passport. And it's very hard when you're, when you don't have a passport, it can be hard to prove your nationality. And this was in the 1980s when the last of the terrorists, the Bader Meinhof group, were still in hiding in Germany and they had recently killed someone. Uh, that they had kidnapped. And it was just a really tense time. And the fact that I couldn't prove I was an American and I spoke German without an American accent, and it was all very confusing to the German authorities. And they put me on a, oh, and there are other reasons, but but they suspected me of being a terrorist. And I was on a terrorist watch list. 
<laughs> you didn't know you'd talk about this. I you, did not. Oh, you did not. You'd interview some some old NPR lady. Can you remember a time where where you were in the studio or reporting, and something went very wrong? Oh. <laughs> God, there are so many. Um, one time I remember that was really kind of funny now that I think about it. Do you remember the Boko Haram, that group that kidnapped young girls in, I think, Nigeria? When that story broke, there was only one reporter who who broke it and who had the story. And I was on the air live and the story broke and they, they got that reporter. And so I was interviewing someone and and they said, you know, here's the script. We're going to talk to this person next. And they're on the line and start start the intro. So I'm, I'm live on the air and I start reading this intro. I don't know any, no one in the world knows about the story yet. So it's not like I know anything yet. And I start introducing this guest, this reporter. And then someone in my ear is saying, oh, wait, we just lost him. Vamp. Uh, but I can't vamp. No one knows anything about the story. And I can't say anything about the story from the script I'm looking at because we're just about to talk exactly about these eight questions that I have. And so I just slowed down my reading of the script like this. And I start stretching the script. And then all of a sudden, someone in my head goes, no, no, we got him back. You're running out of time. Cool. Finish the intro. And so and so I sped up really fast and I said, and he joins us now from Nigeria. And I must have sounded like I was having a stroke. But as far as a guest, I think the most off-putting thing that ever happened while I was interviewing someone, or one one of the things that comes to mind is, well, it was a first-time writer. So uh, she's since become quite well known. She's a very good writer, Mary Carr. She wrote a memoir in the, the 90s because I interviewed her on Fresh Air. She wrote a memoir and it was about her her mother and, and her life growing up. And I must have, her, she wrote a lot about her mother's drinking, um, but I must have asked her some kind of a question in a very ham-fisted way and referred to her mother as an alcoholic because she certainly drank to a, a lot or to excess. And she had written about that a lot in her memoir. I asked that question and she got very upset and she she just kept saying, my mother wasn't an alcoholic. How could you say that? My mother wasn't an alcoholic. You know, I'm I'm sitting there in the studio looking at the producers who had also read the book and we're all looking at each other like, wow, our mother drank a lot. But it's really interesting, Ezra. I don't know if you've run into this. When writers sit down to write their first book, they don't look ahead or think ahead or imagine ever being interviewed, you know, or even that it will go out in the world and everyone will read it. And they, if they're writing about anything in their lives or their family or their friends, that that they're exposing all of that to the world. They just don't think ahead to that point. And so it comes, it can come very much as a surprise to people when their books land and make a big splash and they end up on a show like Fresh Air at that time, I think six, we had six million listeners. They just can't quite get their wrap their head. They're they're not ready to wrap their head around it when it happens. At least a handful of times that has happened that people have come on the air and just it finally hits them that oh my god I've revealed things and now I have to own it and talk about it in public. And I don't know if I want to. 
Barbara Bogate, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been it's been really fun. Oh, that was so fun. Thank you, Esther. I really enjoyed it. That was Barbara Bogave. She's worked as a public radio host, including at Soundprint, Weekend America, and Fresh Air. Right now we're hearing the theme music that Barbara would have introduced Fresh Air with in the 90s and early 2000s. Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with past episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, play our past daily mini crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org support kgvm. Thank you and see you next week.